This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. We are starting, as I mentioned, Sunday, a new series looking at the book of Revelation. Tonight, I want to introduce the book and the series because we need a bit of a framework to make sure that we're all on the same page, at least in how we're approaching this. So let me just read the first couple of verses to set the stage. So the book of Revelation opens, and this is verses 1 through 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When it comes to reading, the assumptions that we bring to a text impact how we read the text. We've talked about this in weeks past, and we've talked about genres and things like that, but you can't read all literature the same way. If you were just to pick up scraps out of a newspaper and not know the context, you could really get confused. For example, you might read, Ravens shot down, or Indians win again. Perhaps the Giants were spotted in L.A. Now, if you don't have the context for those things, you would think, what's going on? People are shooting birds, or what Indians? Or Giants? Like, giant people? No, no, these are all sports references. Our assumptions, things that we bring to the text, make a big difference. You don't read recipes the same way that you read science fiction. You definitely don't read either of those the same way that you read comic strips. And the book of Revelation is something that you have to slow down and say, all right, what's happening here with the larger story? Or I might bring some strange assumptions to it. And the book of Revelation, historically, seems to be one of those books that are more easily co-opted for sensationalist projects, speaking about the ways in which the book of Revelation has been read over the last 2,000 years. One New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of Warren Carter, wrote, it has frequently been used as a weapon against opponents. It has been used to scare the hell out of people and people out of hell. Another guy, and we've read some of his stuff, Eugene Peterson, he summed up the tendency of people to go crazy with the book of Revelation in this way. He says, unfortunately, while there are wise teachers available, they often get missed because there are so many more around who are simply foolish and who, like pushy guides at a tourist site, try to get us to hire them to tell us all about the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell, the number of the beast, and the calendar of doomsday. It's true, if we're not careful, we like 
give me the big show. And now, with media and special effects, people really have gone overboard. It used to be, maybe some of you remember these, these big black and white charts. Some of them would like take up a whole wall of a building. That's all been replaced by computer graphics and monsters. And sadly, you miss the beauty of what's happening in the text. It's not supposed to scare you. It's not supposed to be sensational. It's supposed to encourage and strengthen the church. So we're going to work through this material, hopefully in a responsible, calm way. And uh, I'll try to note, like I did, just did, some of these authors that I have found useful. There, there are three authors that I'll just note now because I may not give them due credit all the time, but they've influenced my thinking quite a bit. Eugene Peterson, who I mentioned, wrote a little book called Reversed Thunder, The Revelation of John and the Praying Imagination. It's really, really good. Then there's another guy, Craig Coaster, who wrote Revelation and the End of All Things, also a really balanced character. And then the opening uh, character that I quoted, Warren Carter, who wrote a book called What Does Revelation Reveal? All three of those are really useful books. Sometime, if you want to spend a lot more time on this, you can look up their stuff because we will not be able to explore every single aspect. I mean, that would take us years and years and years, and we just have the summer for this particular task. So I'm not going to try to talk about everything. I'll note references as we go along that you can check out in greater detail if that's interesting to you. Now, when it comes to interpretations of the book of Revelation, there are all kinds of camps. Among other things, maybe you've heard some of these labels, there are futurists, there are preterists, there are spiritualists, there are historicists. You can join the premillennialism camp, the postmillennialism camp, the amillennialism camp, all kinds of camps. And again, I'm not going to have either the time or frankly the energy to dissect all of those folks. That's really not the point of this. It's not to debate all these ideas. I'm going to give you just a brief, few brief comments about them and then we're just going to jump in. I just wanted to note that there are lots of ways to read this stuff. And for the sake of our discussion tonight, what I'm going to do is just briefly oversimplify things by suggesting there are three loose constellations that you can group people in based on how they read this material. And no doubt the people in those groups would object, but we don't have much time and I'm the one talking. So if they want to object, they, they can. They won't know that I'm grouping them like this probably anyway. So the first loose grouping, and usually this is populated with folks who are identified as futurists or dispensationalists or premillennialists. These folks they border on being obsessed with the book of Revelation. That's like the book for them. They, they kind of forget often there's the rest of the Bible. That's the one that they just seem to love. They read it all the time, and they're constantly finding connections between everything and their particular verses that they like. They can, they can connect anything. It doesn't matter what you bring up. They can somehow tell you how that relates to the book of Revelation. Whether it's they went fishing and they didn't catch anything or they caught a big one. Somehow that's a sign of the time. 
and they can fit it in the timeline where we're heading to, you know, the countdown to Armageddon and the end of the world. You know what I'm talking about. It's just like, this is everything. Um, you might think about a couple of books in the 19, 1970, I guess it was Hal Lindsey wrote his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Or then for a while there was uh, a series of books, the Left Behind series from about 1995 to 2007, where there were books and movies and conferences and everybody was planning what they're going to do if they get left, you know, they miss the rapture and how they're going to fight with the governments and Nikolai Carpathia, the Antichrist. I mean, it was an elaborate thing. Again, I don't know how many of you remember that. I remember my boss when I was working at Wells Fargo gave me one of the books. He's like, oh, you got to read this. What I noticed when I'm reading things is there's not actually a lot about Jesus in all of this stuff, right? There's a lot about fighting and the Antichrist and mark of the beast, but where is Jesus in this whole story? Personally, I really am more interested in Jesus. There seems to be a couple of basic assumptions that, that go along with this perspective. One, the primary impulse is that the book of Revelation is about future predictions, that that's the point of the book, is tell us what's going to happen. And by going to happen, what they mean is, like in our time, not in John's time, not in the first century, but it's primarily future predictions. Not only that, but secondly, the dominant way of, of reading Revelation with, is to understand that it's referring to literal events, not symbolic things, not poetic language, but that these are literal uh, events. Third, the focus, as I mentioned related to number one, it being about primarily about future predictions, is that the focus of the book is and of the reading is primarily on our world, on contemporary events, that you read the book of Revelation to better understand tomorrow's newspaper, not to understand whatever John's newspaper would have been. And then fourth, this reading assumes on some level that the book of Revelation is incomplete. And what I mean by that is this group that sees it as future, it's literal, it's about stuff that's going to happen now, in order for that to make sense, they often have to grab bits and pieces out of other books to fill in the blanks in Revelation. For example, this might surprise you, but you realize that the rapture is nowhere in the book of Revelation. You borrow that from someplace else. Or how about this one? A lot of times people are surprised when I tell them the term Antichrist, that's not in the book of Revelation. Go look. It's nowhere in the book of Revelation. These are pieces that you grab from other places to fill in the holes in the book of Revelation. That's what I mean that this, pers this perspective primarily understands Revelation. It's incomplete. You can't just read the book of Revelation. You need these other pieces of the puzzle for it to make sense. So that's the first group. The second group, like the polar opposite, and I also know people in this category, they don't want anything to do with the book of Revelation. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. It's weird. It's scary. All of the numerous interpretations, all the predictions about the end of the world, which, by the way, have all failed. We're still here. The world's not ended. Uh, have given you know, a lot of folks a bad taste regarding the book of Revelation, and their response is, 
well, we got the rest of the Bible. We just this one's too distracting. It's too easy to get you know argumentative with people. It's too easy to get tangled up. I mean, the Branch Davidians in Waco, you remember those folks, they went into oblivion and the fire, and people read that, they're like, okay, maybe we just don't need this book. Let's just ignore it. We're not going to talk about it. So those two groups, lots of people, maybe a majority of people fall into those categories. If you haven't picked up on this by now, I don't really find either of those two approaches compelling. I think they both miss out on what's the central key point of the book. It's not just about us, but it's also not something we can ignore. So what I want to do in this series is think about a third approach, and I want to describe that for a little while tonight so that you can see how I'm going to engage over the next several weeks. You'll know what my assumptions are when I'm teaching and talking about this. Let me just point out briefly a few more details why I think those those two categories miss the point of the book of Revelation. The the latter category is the easiest one to to explain why. The, The folks who want to ignore the book of Revelation. We can't do that. It's in the Bible. As Christians, we believe the whole Bible is for us. So it's not enough to say, well, because it's confusing or people have misread it or they've done crazy things, I'm just going to skip that part. For 2,000 years, Christians have wrestled with the book. Some of them have liked it. Martin Luther, he really didn't like it at first. Uh, When he did his German translation of the Bible, he actually put a disclaimer at the head of Revelation that said as far as he was concerned, he couldn't find any evidence that the Holy Spirit was inspiring this one, but it was there, so he had to leave it. Okay. (laughs) But he left it in there. And then subsequently, he seems to have softened his approach a little bit, For 2,000 years, Christians have argued about what it means, but in general, they have agreed, this is part of the Scripture. It's inspired. We have to deal with it. And I think that for us, this is true as well. We can't just leave it on the side. Now, back to this first group that I mentioned, there are some problematic areas there, and I want to be clear that I'm not just dismissing them out of hand. Here are a couple of reasons why I think that first category just really doesn't get us where we need to go. First, yes, the book of Revelation identifies itself as a prophecy. And I'll come back and talk about this in a little more detail in a few minutes. But to say it's a prophecy, that doesn't mean it's just about the future. When Revelation describes itself as a prophecy, if you want to know what that means, you have to look at the Bible. How does the Bible talk about prophecy? And what you see in the Bible is that prophecy is not so much about the future as it is about what we're supposed to do now. Think about the prophet Isaiah, prophet Jeremiah. There's an element of future, but it's the future that says, look, if you keep on this path, you're going to drive over a cliff. What's the point of them telling you that? So you stop the car now. right? So the the emphasis is on what you're supposed to be doing in the present. Now, how do they know that you're going to drive over the cliff? Because the prophet is usually conveying to you God's perspective. From our perspective, oh, it just looks like there's plenty of road. From God's perspective, the bridge is out. So the prophet says, you're headed for destruction. But it would be a mistake to think that the prophet's all about telling you the future. No, the prophet is giving you God's perspective on now. 
there are future elements, but that's not the primary purpose. It's not that the prophet is a spooky person that's telling you, when you get tomorrow's newspaper, this is what the headline's going to be. No, it's God's input into our life now. So, yes, Revelation is prophetic, but this approach that sees its primary goal as telling us what's down the road, it's really pushing a little bit on what the Bible means by prophecy. We have to make sure we use biblical words and biblical meanings for the words, not popular meanings. Secondly, prophecy, uh, apocalypse, poetry, these often use metaphorical images. If someone tells you, hey, give me a hand next week, I've got a big project, they're not expecting you to deliver them a hand. No, no, it's, it's metaphorical. God says through the prophet, I'm going to put a hook in the jaw of the Assyrian king and draw them down. It doesn't mean he's going to take a giant fish hook. Images of beasts and monsters, these are not literal. They're metaphorical. And so uh, to, to insist that really this is about literal events often, again, pushes the envelope a little bit too hard. Now, to read the book of Revelation as primarily focusing on now discounts the actual words of the book itself. We read in our opening lines that the book of Revelation is explicitly addressed to churches in the first century. Now, that's not to say that it's, that it's somehow irrelevant. And I'll come back to this uh, in a few minutes. It does have relevance for us, but it had relevance for those people as well. To assume it's all about now means that the people that John wrote it to, it would have been meaningless to them. They would have got this text and, well, it has nothing to do with us. We don't know what's going on. This is about 2017. That just doesn't seem reasonable. Why would John write to the seven churches that are in Asia and then go on to name them, talk about problems they have, if he really wasn't referring to them at all, he was referring to us. So I, I think that... That approach discounts what the text itself is saying. And then lastly, this notion that it's incomplete also doesn't, doesn't make sense within the biblical text. The book of Revelation isn't missing pieces. It's coherent. Now, after you read it for what it is, you can put it in conversation with other parts of the Bible. Absolutely. It's what we do. But you first have to recognize John didn't send them half of a letter. He didn't send them a letter. Maybe you've seen like when the, they you know, request Freedom of Information Act you know, documents from the government and they, they give it out to you and it's got all these black lines where they've redacted it. And then you're reading, you're trying to figure out what's in the gaps. That's not what John sent. He didn't send them a letter where there were huge gaps and then the people in that day were going to have to go out and figure out the missing pieces. Some of the early Christians, they didn't have these other letters. So if it wasn't there, when John sends this letter to the church in Ephesus or wherever, the assumption is the letter that I'm sending you has what you need to know. So based on that, there are, again, some parts that that first group gets right. It's okay to love the book of Revelation. You can't make the whole Bible about the book of Revelation, though. It needs to be in its right context. The third group that people... Uh, fit into 
And I'm sure there are other ways you could divide people up into four groups or five, but for us, I think these three groups are helpful, is one that starts with the assumption that the book of Revelation has coherence and its own integrity in itself. It's not missing any pieces. And if we take the book of Revelation on its own terms to start with, that's the best way to read it. This is the approach that I'm going to take in looking at the book of Revelation. That first, we have to encounter it on its own terms. We have to respect its own integrity, its own vocabulary, the way that it works. After we do that, then we can ask, all right, well, how do I want to apply this? Or what does this do compared to Paul? Or how does this fit with the teachings of Peter or, or James or Isaiah? But first we have to say, what is the book of Revelation actually teaching? What is it saying? What is the, the language that it's using? We have to respect the internal integrity of the book itself. Now, what this looks like takes the following form. Here are the things that if we're going to respect the book, take it on its own terms, we have to pay attention to. One, the context. If I want to read the book of Revelation for all it's worth, I need to first recognize that it's written in a time and culture very different from my own. Different political situations, different language is being used, and a responsible respectful reading of the book of Revelation says, I need to take that seriously. I need to think about, where is this place called Patmos? He's writing to churches in Asia Minor. He's writing in Greek. Things are a bit different than for me, and I need to put it in the, the appropriate context. Oh, just as a side note, the title's the book of Revelation. It's singular. The title's Revelation. Just in case you're wondering, if, or if you want to, you know, just like make me twitch, you can just walk by and say, so that was a good study on the book of Revelations. Watch, I'll twitch. <laughs> okay, back to my notes here. The second thing that I have to pay attention to if I want to respect the coherence of Revelation as a book itself, we have to pay attention to the genre. Now, the book of Revelation, like other biblical books, has more than one. The book itself identifies three different genres. It begins in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first genre, apocalypse. In popular culture, we think, well, that's the end, like the great catastrophe, the Armageddon, you know, the meteor coming down, global warming, whatever. In Greek, apocalypse just means uncovering. This genre may not be well known to us, but in John's day, they knew this perspective. Just like we know recipes, we know weather reports, they know apocalypse. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, say chapters 7 through 12, same kind of genre. In Isaiah, chapter 24 through 27, Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14, these are all examples of apocalyptic writing. And I'll talk about what that means in just a second. Outside of the Bible, John and his original audience would have also probably been familiar with some other books that didn't get into the Bible. First Enoch, Second Baruch, Fourth Ezra. If you don't know what those books mean, that's okay. They're just other books that were written at the same time. Now, what do 
apocalyptic books look like? Usually, they involve some kind of revelation of information that humans don't have that comes from, say, an angel. When you look in the book of Revelation, who's telling John all this stuff? Angels. You see this also, though, in Isaiah, Zechariah, the book of Daniel. They have visions. Something about the larger domain gets revealed to humans. So here we are in this room. We can only see so far. We can see each other. But what's the bigger story that's going on? What's the cosmic story? These are what revelations, apocalypses, deal with. Usually God will send an angel. The person will have a vision that will help them understand, well, what is God up to right now? Often in apocalypses, they're wrestling with the question of who's in charge? In Revelation, we'll see this comes up again and again. You have Rome, you have all these other powers. They're going, well, who's really running the show? In order to see that, you have to get a higher perspective. Remember my earlier example about the bridge is out. Well, how do you know the bridge is out? Well, because God's a bit higher than the rest of us. He can see things that are outside of our field of vision. Now, in order to describe the cosmic scene, you usually use language that's bigger than this normal language. So you'll have images of beasts, monsters rising up out of the sea, not because they're real monsters, but these are ways, vivid, metaphorical ways of speaking about kingdoms and rulers, cosmic powers. So the images are often very different than just describing local present context. And you even see this in uh, our own language when we try to talk about the big picture. You talk to somebody, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm working for the machine. What machine? Or, you know, what are you you know, sing songs about working for the man? You're not referring to a man, but you're using this imagery to express larger realities, cosmic power dynamics and structures, revelations, apocalypses. When I say revelations, I'm not referring to the book of Revelation. I'm referring to the genre. Use these images to help people grasp these larger realities. So for us, it may seem strange to open our Bible and read about some seven-headed beast. What's going on there? John's readers and his hearers, because the book was probably read out loud first, which would also make it sound much more interesting to just hear somebody read this thing out loud to you, they would have been familiar with this. They wouldn't have thought, oh, there really is a beast out there. Or when John describes this woman clothed with the sun up in the clouds and they're not going to go outside and start looking around to see you know, where the woman is. So the first re uh, genre is Revelation. The second genre that we find in the book of Revelation is prophecy. And you see this in verse number 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So again, I'm not making this stuff up. The book of Revelation calls itself a revelation, an apocalypse, and it calls itself a prophecy. And as I've noted, prophecy is not primarily predicting the future. It's not weather forecasting. It's a declaration of God's word relative to a particular circumstance. The prophets throughout Scripture interpret history and they analyze current events within the context of God's purposes, God's will, God's desires for humanity. 
Sometimes that includes future implications. But the main issue is always, what are we supposed to do now? What are we supposed to do in our present time? How are we supposed to act in this moment? And in the book of Revelation, what you see is that true and false prophecy are distinguished not so much by what comes true tomorrow, but by whether or not it draws people closer to God or leads them away from God. False prophets in the book of Revelation are not people who predict things that don't come true. False prophets in the book of Revelation are people who lead people away from God. Some of them can do miracles. They can do amazing things. But they're leading people away from God, so they're a false prophet. The true prophet is the one who teaches people, who helps people be more faithful to God. The third genre, running along here, and again, I will have a handout at some point so you can go back to to look at this stuff, and we'll touch on this stuff as we go along, so don't feel too overwhelmed. Um, But the third genre is that of the letter, or sometimes we call these epistles. So if you look in verse 4 of chapter 1, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And he continues, in ancient times, just like, for example, most of us, I hope, in school, you learn the proper format for a letter where you put dear so-and-so at the top, you put the date, depending on if it's a business letter, such and such. You know, you don't put your name at the very beginning. No, Roy Fisher, and then start the letter. Like, no, no, you put your name at the end. Same thing in ancient times. They had standard ways of writing letters. This is one of them. You introduce yourself. You say who it is that you're sending it to. What's the point? You have some kind of blessing. Not only that, but we read in verse number three, who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So the implication is, I wrote something down, sent it to you, somebody's going to read it to you. So the letter, this genre, is another one that's well attested in Scripture and in the ancient times. So we're not, we don't need to imagine what revelations do. We don't need to imagine what prophecies do. We don't need to imagine what letters do. We have examples in the Scripture to show us exactly how these things function. Paul writes letters all the time. And if you'll compare the opening of Paul's letters, they sound a lot like this. Look at how Paul writes. Paul will say, Paul, apostle of the Lord Jesus, to the saints who are in such and such place. Again, this is really helpful because it helps us push back against some of these other perspectives. Paul, when he says, to the saints who are in Corinth, he really means he's writing a letter to them. Now, we have these letters in our Bible But if you'll remember, the way that we approach this, in some sense, it's like reading someone else's mail. Now, we're privileged that we get to read it because it illuminates for us the issues they're wrestling with. It's inspired. We can use it for teaching. But it's still written to someone else. Paul did not write the letter to us. The book of Revelation does not begin, John, to the Christians in North America who live in the 21st century. That's just not what it says. It's a letter to the seven churches that are in Asia that we are privileged. God felt it was important for us to be able to look in on this so we can learn something. 
but it's not written to us. It's written to those Christians, and we learn from what John has to say to them. That's a really important distinction. So by finding out what it meant to those people, we can apply it. Where people get in trouble is they skip over that first step. They don't ask, what did it mean to the church at Laodicea? They just jump right to, well, how does this help me with Obama and Trump and whoever else? Like, whoa, put the brakes on it. First, let's figure out how would the people in John's day have read this? Same thing we do when we read the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Ephesians. We read, what is Paul telling them? As soon as I understand the lesson that he's trying to teach them, then I can apply the lesson to me. So yes, absolutely, this stuff has wonderful relevance for us, but we, we can't get ahead of ourselves. We have to first say, this is a letter to those folks. The third piece that this approach assumes is that it's coherent. When we read the book of Revelation, the approach that I'm going to be bringing to us assumes it makes sense by itself. It's not missing anything. That we don't have to hunt around to find those blacked out redacted parts. Now once we've read it, we can bring it into conversation. And you, we do this again with Scripture. You read Paul's letter to the Ephesians and you can compare it with his letter to the Philippians. No problem. But we don't assume that somehow the book of Ephesians is missing pieces. And we have to you know, figure out where the missing jigsaw puzzle piece is. So we shouldn't do that with the book of Revelation. What we need to do is start with the introduction, chapter 1, and go all the way through to the final blessing in chapter 22. That's the appropriate way to read the book of Revelation. Not go from Revelation 1 to Daniel 9 to 1 Thessalonians 4 to Revelation 6. Because what you see is when people do that, you can create anything you want. You can create any, any picture you want by just hopping around. And you just pick this verse and this verse and this one, and then you can create your own letter. Well, just to be brutally honest, I'm not interested in your letter. I want to read John's letter. That's what's inspired, not my cut and paste. So John's original audience would have read this as a complete letter. They would have assumed whatever John wants to tell us, it's right here. The last piece in this uh, approach that I'm suggesting is the recognition that John is probably best described as a poet. And John as poet ties together those three genres of apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. Why do I say a poet? Well, the way that he uses language, this is how Eugene Peterson describes a poet. I think it's really good. A poet uses words not to explain something, not to describe something, but to make something. Poet, poetes in Greek, means maker. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. It makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. We do not have more information after we read a poem. We have more experience. It's not an examination of what happens, but an immersion in what happens. And when you look at the book of Revelation, that seems to be the way that it functions, is that it's about drawing you into 
an experience. Peterson goes on to say, and I think he's spot on here, the inability or refusal to deal with St. John the poet is responsible for most of the misreading, misinterpretation, and misuse of the book. John wants you to feel something when you read this, not just learn something new. We, as humans, encounter the world through the use of our senses, sight, sound, touch, smell, and these senses are all called forth in a really powerful way in the book of Revelation. Sensory imagination is crucial. Here are a couple of examples of that. Seeing and hearing are juxtaposed with one another. John will say things like, I turn to see the voice. Right? On, a, on a head level, that doesn't make any sense. How do you turn to see a voice? But on a, on a poetry level, it makes perfect sense. Prayer is often associated with smell. It's described as being incense that goes up before God. Numbers become an, uh, an extension of uh, our tactile sense. So you can count, you can touch. When you say numbers, it gives you a sense for how something feels. Right? So it's not just a number. Usually they have some other greater sense. For example, in the Bible, 40 often is shorthand for saying a long time. And it gets used again and again to express long periods of time. How long do the Israelites wander in the wilderness? Long enough to kill a whole generation, 40 years. How long does it rain? Enough to flood the whole earth, 40 days and 40 nights. How long does Moses go up on the mountain? Long enough they think he's dead, 40 days and 40 nights. Right? So the, it gives you a sense of feeling. Taste appears. The Laodicean church is a lukewarm taste that gets spit out of someone's mouth. This is the description of a poet, not a systematic theologian. This is not Paul writing, this is John writing. His use of time. Again, this is another place it's important to recognize John's a poet because the time doesn't just move forward, A, then B, then C. John loops back on things. He's going along and then he circles around and comes back to the same image, the same experience. John, as poet, is an important recognition. Think about it this way. Just whatever your favorite genre of music is, take the, you know, the ideal person, put them in a different genre, and it doesn't work anymore. I love Johnny Cash, but he's just not a classical pianist. And I have friends who don't like Johnny Cash because they're obsessed with Bach. I love Bach, but you can't apply the standards of what Bach is doing to Johnny Cash. They're, they're doing different things. And it's not fair to tell John he has to act like Paul or he has to act like Peter. No, John is doing something wild. It's, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. Now, the overarching theme for John is laid out in the very first part of the book. So we, we've heard a couple different approaches. Let me summarize or, or, or try to come to some conclusion here, John, in his opening, makes it clear what he's up to. In the opening verse, when he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave. So John does two things here. One, he makes it clear, all this stuff that you're going to be reading, that you're going to be hearing, God is the source. God's the author. Uh, this is not a book that came from you know, a bad trip. Uh, one of these other books, it's kind of funny. I think it might be 4th Ezra. 
the guy is described as going out into a field of flowers and laying down and has a vision. Well, if you're familiar with the Middle East, you might know what kind of flowers just grow there out in the Middle East. Go to Afghanistan, lay out in a field of flowers, the opium poppies. John doesn't say that he went out and ate some flowers or had some tea. He said, this, this came from God. What I'm about to tell you, this is something that comes from God. Pay attention. And what is it that comes from God? The revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is crucial. Everything in the book of Revelation has to be brought into conversation with that opening. It can be about Jesus. It can be from Jesus. It could belong to Jesus. right? It could be the revelation of Jesus. It could be the revelation that's about Him. But it could also be the revelation that belongs to Him. And it could also be the revelation that's from Him. And in fact, what we'll see is it's all three of those things. Christ is at the center. He's the final word. He is both the content and the agent of revelation. What is this book about? It's about Jesus. It's about coming to know Jesus. It's not about which pope is going to be the last one. They didn't even have popes at this time. That's a distraction. It's not about which American president is going to lead us into oblivion. It's about Jesus. Now there are, as we've already noted, applications that we can make. But whatever scene that we're looking at, no matter how wild, whether it's beasts or fire or whatever, the question I have to continue to come back to is, how does this help me think about Jesus? How does this help me think about what Jesus is doing in the world, what he's doing in the churches? The book of Revelation, in this sense, doesn't so much add new information as it asks us to think about familiar information in unfamiliar ways. In the book of Revelation, there are something like 404 verses. There are at least 518 allusions or echoes to other parts of Scripture. So there are more echoes to other parts of Scripture than there are verses. What's John doing? He's taking established stories. He's taking the scriptural witness and he's challenging us to think about it in fresh ways, using more visceral image, using wild pictures, sights, sounds. All of these things are coming together, challenging us, hey, you think you know this story. You've gotten complacent thinking about God. Well, here's a different perspective on God to shake you up, to make you think in a different way. That's what John is up to. It's all about Jesus. Everything in this revelation, and we're going to see this next week when we look at the churches, and Jesus is in the front, Jesus is in the middle, Jesus is at the end. So if someone asks you, oh, what's the book of Revelation about? Here's the nice answer, Jesus. So this third approach that says, what's the context? What's the genre? It's coherent. John's a poet. All of these things are working together for him to paint us a beautiful, striking, vivid, powerful image of Jesus. The one who is, John says, who was, and who is to come. He is 
the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the ending. I'm far more interested in what John has to say about Jesus than what someone else might think this has to do with the UN. Can it apply to the UN? I'm sure it probably can in some way. But don't you think Jesus is more interesting than the United Nations? And if you get Jesus right, and you get the proper understanding of how Jesus and I are interacting and how Jesus is working in the world, you'll do okay with whatever the United Nations is up to. Those are secondary concerns. Get Jesus right, everything else falls into place. So that's the game plan for how we're going to look at this material. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.